0: Reminders are an important part of life. Everyday life, most of, depending on how you're wired, most of your life is filled with reminding of some form or another. There's the classic string on your finger. I'm, I haven't actually ever seen anybody do that, but that's a common designation of a reminder. Post it notes, I'm sure many of you use post it notes. It was interesting to read that one of the creators first used those to make hymnal notes while he was in the church choir. Famously, pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who was always deep in thought, had trouble remembering all the wonderful things he was thinking about while he rode his horse. And so he would pin small pieces of paper all over his coat and somehow associate the location of the paper with what he was thinking about. And then when he got home, he would remove the paper to remember and carefully write down the thoughts. Now there are countless apps and for notes and tasks all intended to help us remember and to stay on track. But reminders are not just for birthdays or remembering to set out the trash bins. We need reminders for our spiritual lives. Remembering is critical for your life and my life as Christians. Christ gave us communion as a reminder. We're going to enjoy communion together later in the service. He gave that to us as a reminder. He told the disciples, do this in remembrance of me, which implies that we need reminding. If we were sufficiently mindful of the gospel, we wouldn't need such a reminder. And we want to note, especially even now in preparation for later, that communion is not a reminder of the gospel in the abstract. It's specific. The symbols represent his death, which should bring to mind the cause of his death and the benefits of his death. To sing of Christ's death, to think of Christ's death, to preach Christ's death provokes us to consider why such a death was required. And then we're provoked to remember that our sin cost Christ his life. And we must remember that he died so that we may live, that he gave his life for those who certainly didn't deserve to be saved. It is good for us to remember those things. When writing to Timothy, the apostle Paul wrote this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul maintained a view of sin and his past life of sin and self that allowed him to extol God's mercy and grace. He was reminded that he was saved as a great sinner, that his sin was great, but that he had received Great forgiveness. We need to be reminded of these basic essential realities. Your sin is not as bad as you think it is. It's worse. And Christ's forgiveness is not as marvelous as you think it is. It's even more so. And we need to be reminded of that regularly. And we want to do that this morning as we look toward communion and we call to mind our great sin and the Lord's great forgiveness By studying chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah, chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. If you haven't yet, please find chapter 1 of Isaiah. This opening chapter of Isaiah says much about the sinfulness of sin, but also it has glimpses of God's wonderful grace and the great forgiveness that he provides undeserving sinners. Isaiah's opening chapter provides an introduction, really an overview for the, all the rest, the, the remaining 65 chapters of his book. The themes presented in chapter 1, like Israel's sin and God's purifying judgment and his provision of ultimate restoration, those are repeated throughout the book. And then even in chapter 66, many of the same wording and themes that we hear at the beginning of the book are, are repeated, sort of like a, a bookend. In these 31 verses of Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord is speaking and he calls the people that we're hearing to listen, to heed. He's giving his view of things, his assessment, his perspective, authoritative perspective on the condition of Israel, his people, and then his authoritative response to that condition. What should they do? What did he expect of them? Where had they gone astray? And what do they need to do in response? This chapter answers questions like, what did God think about Israel's condition? What does God want from them? He tells them and tells us very plainly in these 31 verses. And our focus on these 31 verses today, we need to be important. It's not that we read that so that we can tisk tisk and shake our head at the people of Israel for all their disobedience. We are to learn from their example and to be reminded of our great sin and to be reminded of the great forgiveness that God has promised to provide. These words that were addressed to Israel some 2,700 years ago call us to self-examination as we study them. They call us to meditate upon God's grace as well. Hearing God's assessment of Israel's sin should cause us to assess our own hearts and the sin and the vice that remain within us. It helps us to assess the nature of our sin. And hearing God's invitations to repentance should move us toward repentance with hearts that are tender toward God's word, and hearing that God offers forgiveness to those who are rife with sin should freshly amaze us that sinners such as us can have our sinful hearts cleansed by the grace of God. You may be here this morning and you're on the end of the spectrum where you're constantly in the mire of guilt for sin and dwelling on sin and thinking about sin. And in that, these verses remind you that forgiveness is available and that the Lord has made a way for forgiveness and that that sin can be cleansed. If you're on the other side of the spectrum and you think little of your sin, you've forgotten why the Lord needed to save you in the first place then this, these verses in Isaiah 1 call you to be reminded of the depth and the deceitfulness of sin and that you needed forgiveness. And for most of us who are probably somewhere in the middle, listing back and forth between wrestling with the guilt of sin or thinking too little of it, these words, these verses do both and help us to remember that we are great sinners who have a great Savior who's offered great forgiveness. Now we're going to look at this whole chapter we're going to break this down around two confrontations. I want to show you kind of the structure. And those of you who are furious writers, just hold off, okay? I'm going to show you a few things, and I don't want you to start writing. You'll break your pencil and be frustrated with the rest of the sermon, okay? So this is, th- this is a very simple outline through the whole 31 verses. There are two confrontations, and in each confrontation, we see unfaithfulness exposed and then repentance invited. In each confrontation, we're going to see the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel exposed by the words of the Lord. And then, amazingly, after each confrontation, we're going to see repentance invited by the words of the Lord. And we're going to go through these individual sections in more detail than what I just showed you. And we will publish the outline on the website, okay? So there's a lot of words on these slides, all right? So fair warning. Right? And you can get them all without having to write a single one of them, if you're so inclined, on Tuesday. Okay? All right. So our first confrontation comes in verses 2 through 20. In 2 through 20. And the first thing we'll see is unfaithfulness exposed. So I'm going to read verses really 1 through 20 of Isaiah chapter 1 for you. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Isaiah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the first 15 verses of this section, unfaithfulness is exposed. And then in verses 16 through 20, repentance is invited. And the way that deceit, the unfaithfulness of Israel is exposed is instructive because it helps us to see different pictures or different angles on sin. It helps us to see. The sinfulness of sin, the Lord characterizes it. It's not blanket statements about treachery or transgression. It's personal. And the sin is described in terms that should have called Israel to repent, to turn from their path, and is instructive for us to hear the nature of sin that we're called to turn from as well. So he first articulates this exposure of unfaithfulness through the grief of a spurned father. In verse 2, heaven and earth are called as witnesses, reminiscent of Moses when he, in Deuteronomy 30, calls heaven and earth to witness the covenant stipulations that are laid forth for the people of God, the conditions for blessings and curses that are set forth. And as Isaiah will make clear, they had not chosen the path of life. <clears throat> and yet even now, God again will set before them graciously a choice, continue down that path or turn to him for life. But heaven and earth are called as witnesses for this indictment. I'm calling it a confrontation, but it could be described as a courtroom scene where Israel is called to account and indicted in front of the heavens and earth by the penetrating word of the Lord. The picture in verse two is of a child spurning the care of a loving father. This nation, whom in Exodus 4 is called the Lord's son, his firstborn, who Deuteronomy 7 says were chosen to be a people for God's own possession. This child of, of God, this people, this son, had revolted against their loving father. We even read earlier in Hebrews 8 for our scripture reading where it says that the Lord had had taken them out by the hand, leading them in redemption. This relational language of father to child. And though they had been tenderly brought up, they spurned the care of their loving father. Their sin was rebellion against him. He goes on to emphasize this rebellion by a comparison. He says, look at verse three, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger even brute, dumb livestock, know who's in control, who feeds them, who leads them, who cares for them, but his own people. But Israel does not know, he says. My people do not understand. Now, the Lord is not lamenting here ignorance in the sense of they're just intellectually unaware of the Lord. This is willful. They refused to acknowledge that the Lord had borne them along. They refused to acknowledge that their ways were contrary to the very ways the Lord had called them to walk. When it says that they don't know and that they don't understand, it's they don't live as though they possess knowledge of the Lord, his own people. You hear the contrast? My son does not know me. My people don't even know me as well as an ox knows its owner. So they lived as if they were ignorant of all that the Lord had done for them, but it was rebellion. And that's what we see in verse 4. They're dominated by their sin. They're weighed down with iniquity. These sons of his are now called offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And then listen to the language at the end of verse 4. They've abandoned. They've despised. They've turned away. They abandoned the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah's most liked name for God. It's used over 20 times in this book. And it joins God's transcendence and majesty when we think of holiness, his complete set apartness in every way, shape, and form with his covenant relationship with Israel. He's the holy one of Israel. He was also set apart in covenant with them as they were set apart to him. The emphasis of these verses is on the nature of the sinfulness of Israel. Israel. Again, think of the relational language that's being used. That's what the Lord is wanting to get across. Relational unfaithfulness is what characterized the sin of God's people. Again, not mere transgression, though it certainly was transgression. Not general rebellion amongst humanity, but the rebellion of sons against their Lord. Think of any trying family situation you've heard of. Or think of a story that demonstrates, uh, whether it's fictional or not, a child who's tenderly reared by a loving father, who's cared for, who's instructed, who's provided with all that they need, who the good way is shown to them and the bad way warned against. And we read of, of that child spurning that instruction, revolting against father, and abandoning them, running from them headlong into destruction. It's gut-wrenching. That's how we're supposed to think of what Israel has done. That's what we're to think about this description of sin. We're to think of unfaithfulness and abandoned love and despised tender care, turning away, that we just feel the sting of treason or betrayal. We learn from this not simply because... Israel did it and, and were warned about what they did and how horrible it is, but also at the nature of sin amongst God's people. James himself, in his letter, warns the church about this same type of sin. He warned the church that friendship with the world is hostility toward God and that love for the world among Christians is spiritual adultery. And he uses the same type of relational language to emphasize that our sin as God's people, is an affront to the God that we have relationship with, that our sin is rebellion and that it grieves him. We just heard this recently in Ephesians that God the Spirit is grieved by our sin and unfaithfulness. And this helps us to understand the, the sinfulness of sin. It's not just the failure to meet a command. It's a revolt, a rebellion against a loving heavenly father. So they've grieved their father, acting as brutes and not as favored sons. But then he goes on to show even more of their unfaithfulness through an assessment of their woeful condition. And this comes starting in verse 5. They're in terrible shape. Their rebellion against their loving father has left them in a horrible condition. One would think they would have repented but they persist in their sin. And that's what leads to the questions. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Verse five asks. It's like, it's an incredulous question. The people of Judah are experiencing the consequences of sin. Indeed, we're gonna see here, they're devastated by sin and yet they persist in it. The word says, there's not even any place left for you to be stricken. Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound left, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. It's health imagery. They're completely ill. They're battered. They are not experiencing any healing, any care for their wounds. And this imagery connotes primarily, I think, their spiritual sickness. Because in spite of all of this condition some of which would be literal, not merely figurative, as we're going to see in verse 7, they persist in their sin. All of this hardship, all of this unhealthy consequence in their life, and yet they persist. Verses 7 and 8 highlight the consequences of their sin. Their land is desolate. Their cities have been burned with fire. This describes, I believe, what happened when Sennacherib came in to take the northern Tribes, Israel, back to Assyria, and he gets close to Jerusalem. We're told even up to the neck, the prophecy says. He surrounded Jerusalem before the Lord intervened. The cities had been plundered, and that enemy had left cities burned and land desolate. So they're experiencing the consequences of sin, and yet they persist. None is turning to the Lord. Their condition is woeful just demonstrates even further how entrenched in sin they are. Verse nine gives us a hint of grace, a glimpse of grace. There's an exception in the midst of this devastation. It says, unless the Lord of hosts, so bad was their condition, that unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. In a word, right, gone annihilated. That's what he's talking about. The Lord of hosts emphasizes his power. This is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the powerful God. He had prevented his people from going the way of Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning total annihilation. And here we see just a glimpse of grace amidst this confrontation that the Lord is going to preserve for himself a remnant of his people. And this theme would carry through Isaiah. Paul in Romans 9 quotes this where he's vindicating God and demonstrating how the Gentiles, most of us, have been included in the people of God in Christ and that his promises to his people Israel have not failed because he has sovereignly and graciously saved a remnant. But even so, even though the Lord has left a few survivors, their present condition is woeful. They had not repented, they had not turned back to the Lord. And it gets worse. He exposes their unfaithfulness now in verse 10 through a denunciation of religious hypocrisy. It's worse. Now he's going to talk about their religious hypocrisy and confront them there. Verse 10 notes a new section. Another call to hear the word of the Lord, to listen up. They've persisted in sin and now he's going to go at their religious exercise and expose the hypocrisy there as well. Verse 10, it's interesting. It's stitched together with verse nine by the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in verse nine, he's saying, you almost ended up like them, annihilated. Now he's calling his own people, Sodom and Gomorrah, reflecting the very depth of their wickedness, the depth of their rebellion. They're like the people of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah, but they're called to listen to the Lord as he now denounces their hypocrisy, their worship. Verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough, he says, of burnt offerings and rams. way through verse 13 here, we're told that their offerings, these are the offerings that the Lord had commanded, that they were required by the law to be brought in faith. He says those things are a burden to him. They've become worthless and offensive, not because of any problem in the sacrificial system, but because of the people because of the reasons that they were bringing them and how they were bringing him. We see this, why? Why does he hate their worship? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Verse 13, he says he can't endure iniquity in these solemn assemblies. They're not dealing with their sin. There's no repentance. They're coming before the Lord, doing the things the Lord commanded in empty sort of ritual adherence, with no heart that's in it at all. This is unbelievably strong language. I hate your new moon festivals, the Lord says. God hates their worship. And he calls it an abomination. And that should get our attention. Anything the scripture says that the Lord hates that is an abomination should get our attention in here. It's worship. Again, we need to ask why? What is it that the Lord hates about worship? It's not anything inherent in the worship system. He's the one who implemented it. It's not that they are coming with animals. He's the one who said, bring this animal and you will be forgiven. It's because they're coming to him with hearts that are far from him. And as he describes Their hands are covered with blood, verse 15. Why? What does that denote? Well, not simply the blood of all their sacrifices. I think it's the injustice, the wickedness that was pervasive in the city. Later we see in verse 23 that people are following bribes and there's thievery. Orphans are not being defended. Widows' pleas are not being taken up. There's murder. They have blood on their hands and they're not turning from those things and coming to the Lord by faith to make atonement, to be restored. They're bringing their empty sacrifices with hypocrisy. And God says, I will hide my eyes from you. I'm not gonna listen to your prayers because your hearts are wicked. We're reminded by this that God has never, never wanted at any point in time in his word empty ritual as a replacement for heart inclination that comes forth in obedience. Bringing sacrifices because you love the Lord and you believe that the Lord will do what he said he will do if you bring them by faith. That was the motive for bringing sacrifice, to receive forgiveness and humble dependence on him and the means he revealed. That's not what was going on here. It's hypocrisy. And the Lord says he hates it. How sinful is sin? They've revolted against their heavenly father, and now they've distorted the very exercises that he has given them to be restored to him, to experience and know forgiveness. They've distorted those things and are practicing them in hypocrisy. Look, there's a lot of applications for this that we could run to. How many churches did you drive past on your way to MRBC this morning? A lot, right? A lot. I know I did. What separates those churches from one another between true worship And phony worship. What separates true worship from phony worship? There are auditoriums that are small and large, full of people who have gathered together this morning for the purpose of worship. What separates true from false? Certainly, there are distinctives of those gatherings that are important. We would say here at MRBC, our view of God, our view of Scripture that governs the shape of what we're doing in this hour together is a distinctive that's important but those essential convictions flow from hearts that that are called to be inclined to the Lord. And our religious activities for the Lord here and the religious activities for the Lord in any of the churches we passed must not be done merely externally. They must not be done apart from soft, repentant hearts and anything that's done in the name of worship, apart from that type of disposition, the Lord says here is a burden to him. What separates true, faithful worship and service from phony, hypocritical, so-called worship is one's heart condition. This is instructive. It's a warning for us as God's people who have his word, who gather together in his name to worship him, who carry out his ministry throughout the week in one another's lives and in this world, as witnesses and may it never be that we weary that we weary the lord with empty religious practice while our hearts are hardened with unconfessed sin but that's what was going on in israel and it's instructive for us not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin these verses there's a lot of darkness unfaithfulness is exposed and it helps us to see the deceitfulness of sin. And even if we need to, to be warned against that type of sin and that sinful nature that, that works itself out in our flesh. But against that darkness and against that warning, light shines in verses 16 through 20. And the often used illustration is often used because it's true. And that is that a diamond shines brighter against a black backdrop. And the Lord's grace shines ever brighter and his mercy shines ever brighter against a black backdrop of sin. God moves in his word from exposing the people's unfaithfulness to now inviting their repentance. And he does so first in verses 16 and 17 through a call to change course. He directly calls them to repent. Repent. In light of everything that he has just said, indicting them, he calls them to change course, to repent. All is not lost. Wash yourselves, verse 16, he says. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. In contrast, what immediately preceded this, which was a denunciation of religious hypocrisy, now the Lord tells them exactly what he wants. He doesn't want more bulls and goats without soft hearts turned to him in repentance. He wants repentance. This is what he actually wants. It's him saying, you think I want more of your religious exercises? I want repentance. Cease doing evil, learn to do good. And in light of all that has come before in chapter one, this is a call to repentance, which is grace and mercy. It is gracious of the Lord against that backdrop of wickedness for Him to call the people to turn from what He hates and toward what He loves. Verse seventeen, just as a note, the reason that these things are identified specifically is because this is what the this was a, a an An avenue of repentance from the very things that we see throughout Isaiah that the people of Israel struggled with, particular sins. And this is the opposite of that. Even down in verse 23, we're told that they don't defend the orphan. So what does repentance look like? It looks like defending the orphan. We're told in verse 23 that they don't, right, heed the widow's plea. What's it say in verse 17? Plead the widow. So God is just simply describing repentance in terms of what characterized the sins of Israel at that time. And we're reminded here that repentance consists of concrete actions. Look, God calls this people, after exposing their unfaithfulness, to repent. It's not a feeling. It includes our feelings. It's not simply a negative emotion about sin. Verse 16 doesn't simply call us to feel badly about sin. It calls those people and us, by extension, to turn from sin. Concrete action. It's not simply thinking negatively about sin. It's putting off evil, putting on good. In context, it's much more than saying, I'm sorry, here's another another sacrifice. Can I get on with, with this? No. God is after their hearts, and a heart of devotion would reveal itself in learning to do good, and we're reminded that this is what repentance should look like in our lives. Concrete action A turning from sin. Yes, negative feelings about sin. Agreeing with God about what his word says about sin. But action in obedience. Sometimes we get theologically tied up in knots and we say things like, well, I can't repent. God must do it. God needs to change my heart. Verse 16 says, repent. And we take God at face value. He was not asking those people to do something that they weren't held accountable and responsible to do. So we are called to repent. This is what he wants from his people. But what's the benefit? The benefit of repentance. Here explicitly stated, forgiveness. Forgiveness. He, he invites repentance additionally through a call to consider forgiveness. Amazingly, he tells the people, his son, his wayward son, the one who had revolted, rebelled, who was rife with sin, who ignored the consequences of their sin, who were, had distorted all of the religious prescriptions that he had given them and ordinances given them and even used those in sin. He tells this people, turn and consider, verse 18, that though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. That though they're red like crimson, They will be like wool. The call is to consider the Lord's provision for forgiveness. It it seemingly comes out of nowhere. Darkness, 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 unfaithfulness exposed this way, this type of unfaithfulness exposed, this type of unfaithfulness exposed. And then almost inexplicably, apart from what we know is God's mercy and his grace, he says, consider this, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. They deserve to be annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah, but here the Lord offers them forgiveness. Their sin was great, but God offers great forgiveness. This word picture is so really famous, right? It's the stain of sin and the cleansing of the Lord. That's what's pictured here, right? Sin has stained us. There's something wrong with us, that we need to be cleansed from. And that stain is pictured as scarlet or crimson, the dark colors that were you know, impossible to extract once dyed, and once they are dyed into a fabric in the ancient world. And so God, with a very simple word picture, says, I will take your sin, which looks like this stain that seems irreparable, inextricable from the inextractable from the fabric, and I will make it white as snow. As white as you can imagine. Have you ever held up something that you think is white next to fresh snow? It doesn't look as white anymore. Right? As white as we can imagine white being. It says, that is what you will be like after this cleansing, this forgiveness from the Lord. As great as their sin, God offers even greater forgiveness. And this is a reminder to us that we need to come to grips with the deceitfulness of sin that remains in us, that we need to not cover sin, explain it away in various ways, but deal with it as the Lord exposes it here, knowing and confident that we can receive and will receive forgiveness. God is merciful and gracious and offers great forgiveness for great sin. Verses 19 and 20, there are conditions here. Would God just absolve the sins of the people of Israel? No. They can be forgiven, which is grace and mercy. But those who seek forgiveness and repentance would be doing just that, repenting. Verse 19, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is... So simple, he's just portraying the two ways. He just offered and said, consider forgiveness against all that your life looks like that he has just exposed and condemned in this confrontation. He says, consider forgiveness and choose. With this way, with the way of receiving forgiveness for the Lord, with the way of repentance, you will eat the best of the land. Continue in your sin and you will be destroyed. Forgiveness here, importantly, is coupled with obedience. Not as if obedience is itself the atonement. Of course, that's not what's being said here. But forgiveness will not come. The implication of this for the people hearing this and for us is forgiveness does not come to those who don't acknowledge their sin in repentance. Forgiveness from God. Rebellion against our heavenly father. To be forgiven, we confess, we repent, we turn to him. From our rebellion and toward Him. Look, there are many implications from this. What is something? We, we're told clearly what God wants from His people in these verses. What God wants from His people are hearts that are soft toward their sin, hearts that repent, not heart absent ordinance, but heart attentive obedience. He wants us as His children to recognize that our sin is disobedience. Disobedience of one who loves us, who has cared for us. He wants us to have hearts that tremble at his word, as Isaiah 66 says. He wants us to have hearts that obey because we love him, as Jesus says in John 14. And he portrays the character here of true repentance because that's what he wants. And it's astounding to us that God provides forgiveness for even his rebellious children. Confrontation number two comes in verse 21. And that goes through the end of this chapter. And in the first few verses, Here from 21 to 23, he exposes unfaithfulness again, and then in verses 24 to the end of the chapter, he invites repentance. So after calling them to consider the forgiveness that he offered to his people and showing them the path of repentance and what it looked like, he exposes unfaithfulness again. Another angle on their sin. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice... Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. The city has degraded this people who was once full of righteousness and justice. They've degraded. It's now, they're now murderers. If they're pictured as as metal or a substance that was pure, now they're full of impurity. And then he articulates some of the sins that characterized their leadership. Degradation is the theme. And once again, the relational nature of their disobedience is highlighted. The faithful city has become a harlot. Infidelity. Their sin was unfaithfulness. Infidelity against their loving God. God. These word pictures just describe their sin. They need to be purified. And that's what he will say he's going to do in the next verses. The focus in verse 23 is on the leaders of the people. They're given particular attention because it was the leaders of the people who were called to lead the people in righteousness. And their injustice is described and their unlawful gain all of these things as a contrast to verse 17, which is what the Lord wanted. And so the leaders of the people who were to uphold justice and demonstrate repentance as an example for the people and to lead them in that are failing in the very things that the Lord has asked for. That's the contrast between 23 and verse 17. So he exposes again sin through the lament of their degradation, showing how degraded they are in sin. And then verse 24 Repentance is invited. Repentance is invited. Here, it's invited through him saying what he's going to do, that he's going to purify his people. There will be cleansing judgment. Verse 24, therefore. Because of this sin that's been exposed, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. Judgment. The names of God here in verse 24 to know power, right? Mastery. And he says here that his wayward sons will now be treated as adversaries in some sense. He's going to inflict vengeance on those who have become foes in unfaithfulness. So judgment is going to be executed. But again, it's not the final word. Verse 25 indicates that the purpose of this judgment was not simply punitive or vindictive, but the Lord would use this judgment to purify his people. I will also turn my hand against you for what purpose? To smelt away their dross as with lie, and will remove all of their alloy. All of the impurities, is the word picture, will be removed from them by his purifying judgment. So the Lord will use judgment to purify. This is a promise. He's telling them, I'm going to do this. So he's addressing sinful people. He's exposed their unfaithfulness, but he calls them to repentance by saying, I'm going to purify you. I'm going to turn my hand and and remove the impurities from you. And then surprisingly, verse 26, restoration will come. Then I will restore your your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So here the picture is the harlot becomes faithful as a result of the Lord's work. And we see again, you see the juxtaposition of the evil of sin and the greatness of sin and yet the wonder of God's grace in restoring a sinful, unfaithful people to faithfulness. Verse 27 gives an astounding assurance of restoration. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So yes, a promise that the Lord is not done dealing with his people. His people, Israel, will be restored. He will purify them. They will be redeemed Those redeemed are the repentant ones. They will be righteous. They could be assured of that. These verses shine again in the darkness against the backdrop of the condemnation from God because of their great sin. We see the great wonder of God's grace in forgiving undeserving sinners. He will redeem. There will be repentant ones and they will be redeemed. But he also calls to repentance or invites repentance through a presentation of the conditions of restoration. We see that in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. So he says he'll restore, but once again, conditions are there and two paths really are presented. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Contrast, verse 28, but transgressors and sinners Will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Bringing again notes of that relational unfaithfulness. Those who forsake him will come to an end. And what will be the result? Well, verse 29 just paints a picture of the devastating result for those who persist in transgression. He says they'll be embarrassed, they'll be ashamed of the oaks, which they've desired. They'll be embarrassed at the garden. So pictures of false worship and things that were desired apart from the Lord. And then verse 30, the famous illustration that we know from Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 of the tree that's planted and nourished and established, that's grounded. Here he says, those who are transgressors and sinners that persist apart from repentance, they will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water and even further the strong man will become tinder his work also a spark and they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them the ending of chapter 1 is certainly on a down note it's a warning he's promised that there will be restoration he said those who are there, they will be redeemed. The repentant ones will be redeemed with righteousness. But there's also a warning given to invite repentance, and that is that transgressors and sinners will be disappointed. They'll be destroyed. They'll be ashamed. And that also should lead to repentance. And as we, again, look at the second half, the message for us is the same. We see sin, and it is great, and yet we see God make provision for restoration and for forgiveness. What does he expect Repentance, soft hearts. He's the one who has said he will forgive. He's the one who has said he will redeem against all of the backdrop of sin. He's promised with astounding grace and mercy to forgive undeserving sinners. I'm encouraged by Isaiah 1 to reflect on the astounding grace and mercy that God shows those who don't deserve it we can characterize our sin in the terms that Isaiah uses in condemning the people. There may be religious hypocrisy in our hearts. Certainly our sin is relational infidelity against our loving Heavenly Father. There is injustice in our hearts, and yet we recognize the greatness of that sin and can confidently turn to the Lord for forgiveness because he has said, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And we know that these things are given to us on the basis of our Savior's death